May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There were only 600 people in attendance, but 29 million Americans watched it. Outside of the United States, it was broadcast in 180 countries and into outer space, the International Space Center. In the United Kingdom, 18 million people tuned in. All in all, more than a billion people around the planet and hovering just outside the planet um, watched, uh, that's a billion with a B, watched as Prince Harry and Miss Meghan Markle exchanged vows this past week. Um, I read that the cost of the wedding was $45 million. That's 32 bill, or million uh, British pounds, if you're keeping track, for those of you at home. Uh, 100,000 people lined the streets as this couple went from St. George's uh, Chapel down the street and back around to the palace, uh, back to, to Windsor Palace. Um, 100,000 people. What a sight. What a, what a you know, magnificent sight to behold. This beautiful young American girl marries a bona fide British prince, and there's a royal wedding. I don't know about you, but I watch for the liturgy. You know, I'm like, what? Like, this is this is common worship. This is not Book of Common Prayer. You get the wrong book. What are you doing? I'm I'm upset and I'm yelling at the commentators. They have no idea what they're talking about. But um, I just thought, yeah, what a beautiful, beautiful sight. Something to behold. My mother tells me that when I was five months old, that she held me up to the television. And had me watch as Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon. She said she wanted me to be able to tell people I had seen it happen. I don't actually remember it. But, um, yeah, supposedly I was there watching. We we know there's some sort of intrinsic value in witnessing these events, don't we? We we, we feel part of it and, and we get to see it and behold it with our eyes. And people talk about it. They talk about things that they've seen, like, oh, I saw, you know, the space shuttle lift off for the first time, or I saw the first uh, uh, time that uh, a rocket took off to orbit the Earth, or whatever. Um, I saw Cassius Clay, you know, knock out Sonny Liston in 1963. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world. I, I remember whatever it is that, that was such an important event, and I remember watching it take place or, or sitting on a te- watching it on television. I saw the Scorpions in 1987, and that was pretty awesome. Um, I don't think any of you were there. I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah. So uh, lots of these famous things that we want to see. There are also paintings, these great portraits of things we wish we had been there to see, right? Um, uh, just imagine what it must have been like in, in our mind's eye. So people paint like the signing of the Declaration of Independence or, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware or even Christ, the Last Supper, this sense of which, oh, if we had only been there, the sort of things that we might have captured and seen, historic moments to witness. The book of the prophet Isaiah, we have a, a commentary, we have a, a, a firsthand testimony of somebody who witnessed an, an historic event. It, I believe it happens like on a normal Sabbath day. Isaiah goes to the temple, which is... Uh, to him, like the church, it's a big, giant building. Not the biggest giant building, but it's a really big building in, in ancient Jerusalem. And he goes there to worship God. And it's somewhere in the midst of this liturgy, something happens to Isaiah. I think it happens 
spiritually, not physically. I don't think that he, he physically levitated out and, and was transformed. But somehow in his mind's eye, he suddenly is no longer sitting in a regular worship service. He is suddenly aware of the presence of Almighty God. And he's stunned by what he sees. He doesn't get up and jump for joy. He is shaken to the very core of his being. He's in a holy place. Now, I think maybe for Isaiah, and imagine a, a, a building, you know, probably five times the size, but basically the same structure, only up here there would be the screen that you, could, you couldn't see through. And priests would go through this screen up here, and then they would be on the backside of it. Isaiah's not a priest. He's a layperson, and, and he's out there, and he's watching this all the time. And he, he sees the priests go in behind here, not sure really what they do. And maybe somehow Isaiah had begun to believe that God could sort of fit in the front of that building, in that place behind the screen. Maybe he began to think that, that this is sort of the way that God is. And all of a sudden, he sees God. And did you catch with the text? Would you open your bulletin and look at the text with me? At the beginning of the Old Testament lesson, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I'm just going to put a little pin in there. Nobody dates anything from the date of a king's death. They always date it from the year of his reign, in the fourth year, the sixth year, the eighth year of the king's reign. Isaiah knows something historic is happening. It has to do with the whole political scheme of Israel, but it also has to do with the king, King Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. In Hebrew, I saw Yahweh. Well, this is first of Adonai, and then later Yahweh. I saw the Lord high, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Now look at this. And the train of his robe, the train of his robe, it's a way of saying the hem of his garment filled the temple. The smallest little bit encompasses the entire building. Just the little edge of his garment fills the temple. His robe, the Lord himself is high and lifted up. He is not contained in this building. This building doesn't even contain the, the, the hem on his garment. And what happens? What do we see? And above him stood seraphim, seraphim in Hebrew. And each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These angels, these angels are in the presence of God. And what do they do? What do they do? They cover their faces. They cover their faces because in the presence of God, they, they can't even look and behold his holiness and his, his, his glory. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord and I saw these angels and these angels couldn't even look at God. As holy as they are. And they cry out. Notice what they say. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of the angel armies, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, in, in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, if you wanted to make it the superlative, you would simply repeat it. So if you wouldn't say pure gold, you could simply say gold, gold. Or you could say, you know, the olives are full of pits. You would say pits, pits. You would just duplicate it. It's a way of saying, you know, it's just thoroughly uh, filled with pits or thoroughly purified gold. Here it's thrice repeated. Holy, holy, holy. 
Nowhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures that I can find is there a, a three-time um, repetition except in reference to God and His holiness. That God is holy and purely holy. Now, I think, just a minute, that a lot of people misunderstand this word holy. They understand it in terms of um, moral purity, of being without sin, and that is absolutely true, that God is thoroughly pure, without sin, without darkness. In him is only light. But that's not what holiness means in its totality. Holiness means to be one of a kind, unlike any other. I remember writing in a, in a dissertation, maybe some of you remember writing in, in, in yours or in papers or whatever, you would use the word unique. It's slightly unique. It's kind of unique. And I remember my dissertation editor said, no, Joe, unique means one of a kind. <laughs> you can't be kind of unique or sort of unique. You either are or not, you know. So get rid of that. Use a different word. It's rare. Okay, God is not rare. God is unique. One of a kind, holy, unlike any other. Now, we often use anthropomorphisms. We use these language of, of human kind of terms like the ear of God or the hand of God or things like that. But we only use that as a way of describing what we can't describe. Even re- reference to God with pronouns or masculine pronouns doesn't mean that God is a man. I know that might shock some of you. But God cannot be. God is pure spirit. The Lord Jesus himself says God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship God in spirit. God is unlike any other brightness in his radiance. Um, he, is, he is holy and unlike. And what happens to Isaiah when he sees the Lord like this? He's blown away. He's, he, he's terrified. He, he is just shaken to his core with fear. I was talking to my son Benjamin the other day. He flew in from Los Angeles. He was here for a week, wanted to come and, and be part of his brother's graduation and party and all that sort of thing. And we were driving back, and somehow we had this conversation about, uh, about the way he, he was this child. He was so quiet. He wouldn't talk. He wouldn't tell you what he was doing or what he was thinking. He would just go off and do things. And one time he was about three or four years old, and we lived in Kentucky, and, and uh, we were getting dinner ready. Well, Abby was getting dinner ready, and I was doing whatever I was doing. And we're all kind of making our way towards the dining room table and getting ready to eat. Nobody can find Benjamin. And so we go out to look for him around the house, and he's not in there. And we go outside, and we can't find him. And and we're looking, and more and more we look, the, the more we realize he's nowhere to be found. We're turning up beds. We're going everywhere in the house, and he's nowhere around there. And you ha- I had this sudden panic, this terrified fear. You know, it, What is going on? And we looked all over the houses. We're yelling his name in the neighborhood. And I said, I've I got to get in the car. I'm going to drive around the, the neighborhood. And I go to get in the car, and there in the back seat, he was down on the floorboard playing with some toys. <gasps> and I'm like, oh, you don't know what you just did to me, right? You've had that. You've been there, right? Where you've had that taste of fear, where you realize that the taste of fear is not a metaphor. It's real. Imagine your greatest fear is suddenly multiplied a hundred times. You stand in the presence of a holy God. And this is Isaiah. He is filled with fear. He recognizes where, where, God, where he is in respect to God. And what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a, among a people of unclean lips. I'm undone in the presence of this God. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates uh, this phrase, woe is me. Doom is doomsday. I'm as good as dead. I'm standing here in the presence of pure holiness. 
But that's not the end, is it, for Isaiah? Look to the text again in, in verse um, 7, or excuse me, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. If you were here last week in uh, Pentecost Sunday, we talked about fire as this purifying, a cleansing element in Hebrew Scripture. And, and so here you have this, this angel flying with this burning coal that he's taken from the altar. And he touches the lips of the prophet Isaiah. And the, 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 the angel says, and he touched my mouth, verse 7, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah recognizes himself in the presence of God, and he recognizes that he needs something done for him that he cannot do for himself. I think that a lot of times we think that religion and goodness and morality or whatever you want to call it, is a matter of really working hard at this. And and I'm not saying that there is not personal responsibility. Of course there is. But it's not just about what we do. It's about what God has to do for us and in us. We have to be available. We have to be the one who would be present. Isaiah is there. He wants to see the Lord. And he sees the Lord. And he realizes how undone he is. But he also gets a realization of, of how different God is from all of his conceptions, of all his preconceptions. And I just wonder this morning, like, how big is your God? There's a great little book by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Small. It was written, goodness, a generation ago, but it's still fantastic. Your God is too small. How big is your God? How powerful, how holy, how present Because idolatry is just this. Idolatry is not making a little idol and then bowing down and worshiping it. Idolatry is creating a God in our own image. And what way we do that? Um, that Making a God in our own image. God is not our puppet, not a genie in the bottle, not someone who acts on our command. God is sovereign as a person and does as God pleases. Kyle Yates, another Old Testament scholar from a generation ago, says that we see three things in Isaiah's um, his experience with God. Prostration, purification, and consecration. That the very first thing he does is fall on his face before the presence of God. He's purified, and then he's consecrated or sent out with a commission. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the reason that pride is such... a a powerful and even the most dangerous of all sins. In fact, it's always listed as the first of the seven deadly sins is because it turns us into our own God. We become a God. And if we become God, then God himself is not. Our knowledge is finite. I know that some of you know a lot about a lot. You know so much more about so much more than I know. I know that. And sitting around talking to you, I'm always amazed at at the depth of knowledge that you have in so many different fields. But even if we took all of our combined knowledge, it's a drop in the bucket compared to all of human knowledge, let alone the knowledge of God. All of our wisdom, all that we have, is just, it's just such a small amount. And being proud and being arrogant and being so sure that our little bit of knowledge is all that there is, is well, it's making ourselves into a God. 
Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he realizes his finitude, that his knowledge is finite, that his opinions are flawed and finite. Anne Lamott writes this, she says, You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. <laughs> she goes on to say, and shares all of your political opinions. Out, right? What is God really like? Isaiah sees him and he believes he's going to die. But God doesn't leave Isaiah alone. He doesn't leave him to die. He, he, he purifies him. He sends an angel with his purifying uh, coal. It ends all of our pride when we begin to see God as God really is. It, it just brings all that out. It makes us realize how small we are in light of the universe and in light of all that really matters. Today is Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is always the most difficult because how do you explicate a doctrine that is impossible to explicate without delving into heresy? Every time I've heard people try to explain uh, the Trinity, they almost always get into a moment of heresy. Well, here's the way. You don't explicate it. You believe it. That God is one and three. That God is, there is one God revealed to us in three persons. But this is much true. This much is true. That God is bigger than our imaginations. Much, much bigger. Much more powerful. Much more holy. God is not something to be objectified. An idea, a concept. God is a person to be worshipped. Nothing to be mastered. But to be, to be subject, to, to subdue ourselves to. To subject ourselves to. When we see God, I believe, as Isaiah sees him, as he really is, everything else in our life will begin to fall into place. And he'll do so in very short order. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.